0: tonight. Mr. Steve Grossman. He's an elder at the church. Um, He's not as elder as I am. Um, I'm a little older. Um, He and his wife, Jill, are the pastors here for marriage and family. Um, And Steve also plays the drums. He keeps all the worship people in time. (laughs) Although when David Light's savings time comes, he's a little off. But other than that... So, Steve Grossman, minister to his brother.
1: My name is Stephen Carl Grossman, crowned man, man of integrity. I'm a man, I'm a husband and father, I'm a businessman, and I'm an encourager. I am strong and courageous. I do not tremble nor am I discouraged, for the Lord is my God and he's with me wherever I go. I show myself a man and I observe what the Lord requires. I walk in his ways, decrees, and laws so that I may prosper in all that I do. I am precious and honored in his sight and I serve my Lord. I provide for my family spiritually, emotionally, physically, and financially through the riches. Of Christ Jesus, I protect my family through the wisdom I'm sorry, I protect my family spiritually, emotionally, physically and financially, through the wisdom of Christ Jesus. I want you to hold those thoughts, okay So my testimony I want to start tonight on a Thursday evening in the spring of 1984. When I turned to my lead singer girl in the band, who was not Jill, okay, and I said, Hey, could I spend the night Saturday night? To which she replied, Well, um, yeah, but we'll have to go to church the next morning because it's Easter Sunday. And I said, Okay. I want you to hold that thought, too, and I'll come back to it. (laughs) So, I was born and raised on Long Island, New York. Yes, Northerner. To a very musical family. Both my mom and my dad were musicians. Both of them studied to be music teachers. They met in a band. And the story goes that uh, my dad, the Freddie Grossman Orchestra... Uh, back in the big band era, you know, it's a long time ago, in Rochester, New York, upstate New York, they were holding auditions for girl singers, and the rehearsal space was in somebody's basement, and there were stairs leading from the first floor down to the basement. And the story goes that my mother showed up for the audition, and about the time her legs came into view, most of the band said, that's our singer. (laughs) So, that's not why they married, but they got married and uh, then later on moved to Long Island. So I'm the second of two children. My brother is seven years older than I am, and he is a banker. I, on the other hand, was a drummer from just about the time I came out. My understanding is that I would bang on anything and everything. My mother said, that's a drummer. My dad said, I don't know, I'm not so sure. And she said, oh yeah, that's a drummer." So. I have a picture at home of me about this tall, barely a toddler, with drumsticks in my hand. My mom's holding a little drum on her knee and she's playing the recorder. So I have always done that. And frankly, to this day, I am most comfortable there. But of course, God has other plans. So I grew up on Long Island, a normal Kid going to school suburbs of new york city, but it 's basically just like Smyrna, same houses I mean it really is it 's just another suburb it 's so what it 's near New York City uh, grew up in a non Christian home basically uh, we went to church some when I was young, but increasingly just holidays and then increasingly nothing and about the time I was ten or eleven, twelve somewhere in there they came to me and said, you know, if you really want to go to church, we'll take you. Yeah, sure. Five days of school, and then let's do something on Sunday too. So, of course, I didn't say yes to that. So, long story short, didn't grow up in the church at all. Great family, though. I mean, my parents were married until my mom passed away. Great home life overall. Although, in uh, when I was probably... 12, 13, somewhere in there, my mom developed kind of a series of illnesses. And so from that time on in her life and then in my teenage life, that was the center of our home. And it was kind of a progression of things. And my family was okay at communicating, so I'm sure there was a lot more going on than I knew. But to me, it just seemed like we think it's this, we'd go get tests, it's not that. We think it's this, we'd go get tests, it's not that. So an endless string of tests, endless string of depression, quite honestly. My mom was just stricken with illness. Uh, She was pretty frail her whole life, but illness really consumed her for all of my teenage years. Music was my life, so I went away to music school. And I went to the University of North Texas. It's a state school in Texas. So I went from New York to Texas. Two primary reasons I went there. The first, of course, was music. It, believe it or not, has a world-renowned jazz department. So, hey, that was me. I wanted to be a part of that. The second reason, though, I realized later was to get away from that depression. It was to be far away from that. And I really didn't understand that at the time. Again, I thought I had a pretty happy childhood. But in reality, there was, there was kind of this damper over the whole experience. So I went far away. Uh, went home during my first summer, but after that I stayed down in Texas, played in bands, spent the summers down there going to school, playing in bands, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now something important happened at North Texas State in Denton, Texas. I met Christians. This was new to me. I don't know if I had ever met a Christian before. Now, I'm sure I had, but I was not aware of it at all in high school or junior high. It's funny, I ran into somebody on Facebook recently, and she talked about a mutual friend of ours that gave her a Bible in school, in high school, and said, I just felt like the Lord told me to give you this. So there were Christians, but I didn't know any of them. So here's the thing, though. The Christians I met were musicians, And they were in club and bar bands with me. That's where I met them. They were playing music, pop, top 40 music, in clubs, making a living, putting themselves through college. And they were solid, believing Christians. This was the first people like this I had met, and please bear with me as I use that language, because that's what it was like for me. Kind of like, something's different about you guys, and I don't know what it is, right? Just something about them. They weren't overtly anything, but they were solidly following the Lord. So, you know, when certain things would come up, it's like, no, we just don't do that. No, we believe this, we believe that. So... I started to get to know these people. You, you do that when you're playing five or six nights a week, four hours a night. You get to know the people you're playing with and working with. So I got to become pretty good friends with them and also their friends. their church goers and more and more and more of them. Now, another important part of this story is I had a friend named John. John was a bass player and he was a non-Christian like me. And he and I ended up kind of being the only non-Christians we knew, because we were gradually surrounded by these Christians. (laughs) And we didn't even realize it at the time. It's not like we would say, you know, ooh, we're surrounded. But what we did do was we talked about everything we were experiencing and hearing from these Christians, because they were kind of perplexing us. So it was a big topic of conversation, and particularly what was a topic of conversation was Genesis. I don't know how they can just refute all that science and believe that stuff. I mean, come on, can you believe it? No, I can't believe that either. I mean, now, you'd think we were Genesis scholars, right? (laughs) But we were a drummer and a bass player getting music degrees. But we thought, you know, we had this thing wired, right? And we just kept each other in this mindset. We were crabs in a bucket. I don't know if anybody's familiar with that term. Uh, If you're not... Uh, My understanding is that uh, when you go crabbing, however you go crabbing, you take a bucket with you and you grab a crab and you put it in the bucket. And what I understand is that if you put a crab in a bucket, that crab will get out of the bucket pretty quick. They're pretty good at that. Who knew? The way to keep a crab in a bucket is put two crabs in a bucket. Because the first crab does what it does and the second crab grabs onto them. And the first crab can't pull both of them out, so they both stay trapped in the bucket. Well, John and I were crabs in a bucket. We were keeping each other in this mindset of, you know, no to Christianity, because, well, you know, I mean, come on, Genesis, it proves that, you know, evolution, that's what happened, in science, and so. In the spring of 84, that should ring a bell, this darling friend of ours named Dama, a mutual friend, came to me in my dorm room, just intent on saving me, okay? I didn't know this at the time. She just wanted to get together and talk. But bless her heart, she sat across from me and just spilled her guts and more about the gospel, the Lord, why I needed it, why she was so desperate for me to accept it. And part of the problem here was, I was a really nice guy. In fact, most of them Christians said I was more Christian than they were. And in some ways they were right. But here's the other thing too, I, I totally encouraged them in their faith. I was so understanding and supportive. I'm like, that is wonderful, tell me more. But it was always, that's great for you, but not me, because you believe creationism and I'm it, you're right, all this stuff going on. So anyway, so she pours her heart out to me. And bless her heart, I mean, just, you know, a long time doing this. And she's just going on and on and on, pouring her heart out. And she thinks she is failing miserably, okay? And I, I knew this. I could see this on her face because she, she was so desperate for me to go, yes, but it just didn't happen. And I found out later, she cried for like weeks to people about this thing. But here's what she didn't know the whole time she was talking to me, at one point she got to the fact that this Jesus guy rose from the dead. And I don't believe I had ever heard that before. And that did not compute. And I don't know if you've ever heard anything Or heard anybody say anything about feeling like their brains are scrambled. But that's what was going on in my mind. I'll never forget how it looked in my vision. Because I saw her eyes. And outside of her eyes, I saw like white fuzz. Like TVs used to get when you didn't get reception. Because my entire brain was just scrambling Because no one dies and then shows up three days later and hangs out with people and then does it again and does it again and does it again, right? Of course, I couldn't let her know. Part of the reason I couldn't let her know is I don't think I would have been able to make a coherent sentence anyway about it because literally my brain was just on overload. So, bless her heart, she leaves having failed miserably. About that evening, I hadn't seen my friend John for two or three days, and I saw him every day. I didn't see him the next week. I didn't see him the next week. And then came that Thursday night when I said to my girlfriend, singer, Can I spend the night Saturday night? And she said, well, okay, but we'll have to go to church on Sunday because it's Easter Sunday. And I go, okay. And I remember at the time thinking, why did I just say, okay? But I did. So, spend the night Saturday night. You know, we do our gig, go home, whatever. Go to church Sunday morning. And what is the entire message about? But the fact that this dude rose from the dead. And all of this is a waterfall moment because in that service, it just clicked. And I went, this is real. Period. This is real. I gave my life to the Lord that day, Easter Sunday, 1984. 1984. About a week later, I run into John. Now remember, John and I have all the same mutual friends. Guess what he's heard? Steve's become a Christian. And he's like freaking out, right? I kind of know this. I'm kind of hearing this through the grapevine. Finally, about a week later, we get to have a conversation. And I'll never forget. We had a conversation. I told him everything that happened. And he said, "So, so you believe creation now? And here's the thing, I hadn't even thought about creation for three weeks. That was the first time I'd even thought about it. And I said, yeah, I guess I do. Because if that's what the Bible says, then that's what has to have happened. A couple of points there, right? You never know how what you're saying is impacting somebody. You never know. And you may never know. But chances are, they're not going to say, thank you so much. They might, but they might not. And Dama knows the role she played in my accepting the Lord. She knows that. And everybody in that community knows. And they all played a part in it. But you never know. And then the other thing is, I think we can all have testimonies like this, right? There's things that we're wrapped up in and then God comes over here and goes, hello. And that's as true when we're walking with the Lord as it is for those that aren't. So right, don't, don't give up on those people, whether they're really nice guys or not, because you just never know. You just never know. Obviously, a huge moment in my life. Um, Continued playing in bands. Uh, Right soon after that, I graduated college uh, to kind of go back to New York and not to make light at this at all. But uh, two days after I graduated college, my mom actually passed away. We had actually uh, eventually gotten a pretty accurate diagnosis and was able to treat uh, her disease she had a disease called amyloidosis and i want to say eventually because i think she had many other things leading up to it they treated it with chemotherapy but that just left her ripe for other things and she died of a colon cancer that really came up rapidly and I, and we really believe it was due to the uh chemotherapy just kind of wreaking havoc so uh went home for the funeral obviously after graduation and everything but remained in dallas primarily um So I'm playing in bands. Tell you a little bit about how Jill and I met. So I'm in a couple of bands and doing different bands, and I get asked to be in this band called uh, Rendezvous. And Jill and I had met a few times, like she said uh, when she gave her testimony, we knew of each other. We knew of each other's reputation. We had met a few times. You know, hi, hi. And all during this time from Easter before Easter and Easter on, I'm dating this other girl, this other singer. In fact, I was in a band with her. She moved to L.A., which is why I was looking for another gig. And well, I won't get to that part yet. So, so we get in this band together, and we rehearse three days. She lived in Nashville. She told me about Nashville. I kind of went, hmm, that's interesting, sounds interesting. And then she quits the band for, for really good reasons, And our lead leader of the band, Roy, talks about her for like two weeks. I can't believe how unprofessional she was. I just can't believe she left us in such a lurch. I mean, I just can't. He just went on and on and on and on and on about Jill. How she did. Oh, my gosh. Jill Bradley. Jill Bradley. Right? We find another singer. We start working. We're working fine. Six months later, that lead singer quits. And he comes into rehearsal one day and says, I'm hiring Jill Bradley. And if any of you know me, you know I'm not a conflict-type person. I'm not... I usually don't speak up at all. But for whatever reason, I was like, you're hiring who? What? It's like, yeah, 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 it'll be fine. I'm like, Roy, you talked about her for weeks. You're gonna... How can you... Right, so we go on with this conversation. Over days. So, a week or two later, Jill comes to the first rehearsal. And over time... I realize that she's, like, kind of got an attitude towards me. And then I find out why. Because when Roy goes back to her to make the final arrangements, she's like, well, you know, is everybody cool? And he goes, yeah, but the drummer has a problem with you. <laughs> Seriously. That's exactly what he tells her. So this is, like, how we start, like, getting to know one another, Right? So, that's in 85, like in the spring of 85. We meet and we start working together. We're playing six nights a week. Now, I gotta go back to my girlfriend who moved to LA. Um, I wouldn't wish this on anybody, but I know a lot of people can shake their heads if I say that you ever had a relationship from you know where, and it's not from heaven. That was this relationship, okay? And I didn't know it at the time, she tried to be a strong Christian, but really as soon as I accepted the Lord, it was like, "Great, you can be the spiritual leader, whatever that means. Uh, we just had a really terrible relationship, extremely dysfunctional before dysfunctional was a hip word. Um, she was in L.A. I was in Nashville or Dallas. We were trying to keep that together. It was just doomed. Um, literally, it got to the point uh, twice when. I was calling her and trying to extricate myself from it, where she'd say, well, I'm probably going to kill myself. And then, of course, I'd go, whoa, 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 wait, right? And I I literally finally had to get to a point where it was like, you know, that's your decision. And, uh, you know, there's kind of a nugget, right? We don't control other people's actions. We don't. We can't. We can barely control our own, right? (laughs) Right? But, I mean, seriously. And... But here's a part of the story. Meantime, I'm back in Dallas, and I'm in a band with Jill. And Jill and I became really good friends, and Jill knew my girlfriend a little bit. And Jill and one other guy in the band were my counselors, whether they wanted to be or not. So here's how my relationship with the girl in California would go. It would be like, you know, great, and then, oh my gosh, and then great, and then all right. So all this stuff... I'm like crying on Jill's shoulder, sometimes literally. But just, you know, I don't know what to do, and I don't know oh, what's going to happen, and oh, if she does that, and then I do this, and she's giving me all this counsel, and blah, 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 and just on and on and on, on and on and on. On and on and on, okay? <laughs> and just ask her, and she'll tell you. And so, so a couple of things here. I'll just tell a couple of stories. But one night... Um, this had been going on and on and on, and I'm not exaggerating by using that word again and again. So I, kind of one night, I was like, you know, I just don't really, I don't know what to do. And we were, it was late at night, it was after a gig, you know, two in the morning in the parking lot, and the other friend of mine is, um, I guess, behind me, and I'm kind of in the middle, and Jill's here, and I said, you know, I just don't know what to do, and Jill goes, okay. Are you really asking me, or you just want me to help you, you know, with a simple answer? And I'm like, no, I I really want to know. And so what I found out later was the guy behind me, the whole time Jill says what she's about to say and says it, he's behind her going, because she's going, you don't love her, you shouldn't be in a relationship with her, it's been doomed from the beginning, blah, 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 blah. I mean, she just laid it out. And she was dead right. She was dead right. You kind of know where this is going. What we didn't really realize was all this time, not only had we become friends, but there was more going on. We were really connecting. So now we're the fall of 85, and my dad's about to get remarried. In New York, and go on a month long honeymoon to New York. I mean, to Europe, sorry. So, about a week before the wedding, I finally completely break it off with the girl in California. Completely, and not going back. So, I go to New York, go to the wedding. At the reception, my dad's talking to me. And of course, he knew all stuff was going on. He's like, you know, how you doing? I'm like, yeah, well, I'm doing all right. And and he says, you know, is there anybody you're interested in at all? And I said, well, I don't know. You know, I might take out Jill. You know, she's the singer in the band now. I, I don't know. I might take her out, maybe. So I go back to Dallas. And on October 1st of 1985, we go on our first date. About two days later, she makes me go on another date because she will not be the rebound girl. Okay? <laughs> I kid you not. And I found out later, her mom calls her and she tells her and her mom's like, you did what? But anyway, so I go on this rebound date which lasted about an hour and a minute before I said, well, this has been nice and drove straight to Jill's house. Uh, so we started dating uh, going out a whole bunch. The relationship moved very quickly because we were already friends. We had a lot in common. We knew that we were very um, compatible, et cetera, et cetera. But now suddenly we had like romance and we had attraction, if you know what I mean. Like really a lot of attraction. And I'm, I'm really thankful for this. And this is kind of some other waterfall moments because this was, I think... Um, Well, it was foundational for our marriage, and I know that, and we've talked about it. But uh, it was also God growing me up. But I was like, no, we're not going to go there. And I don't know what it was really other than she mattered that much to me, and the Lord put that in my heart. And so we prayed about that, and the Lord calmed that down. And then other things we prayed about, and the Lord straightened that out. And what began to happen was, I think we should get married. But remember, I said the first date was October 1st. This is like October 12th, okay? And we're like, uh, you know, in like the 15th. And, but the Lord just kept, right? And one of my biggest concerns was my dad's on a honeymoon in Europe. So there's this girl in the band I might ask out. And now I'm like, I think I'm going to marry her. And he's in Europe. So the Lord led me to a scripture about, you know, don't seek the approval of men. That was a toughie. But he was right. So on October 26th, I asked her if she would marry me. And she said yes. So we dated three weeks before we got engaged. And we got married February 10th in 1986, and celebrated 29 years yesterday. Um, Yeah, so this was the area of my talk tonight where I thought I'd just kinda check on the time and talk about some things. Jill and I have been married 29 years, we believe Uh, passionately in marriage and about marriage and for marriage. And there's many reasons for that. One is the story I just said. Uh, Our pastor that married us said he'd never married two calmer people. That's just grace. Because we were clueless. We were in love and we knew we were supposed to get married, but we were clueless. We had a really rough patch around seven years. And details don't matter, but let's just say there were biblical grounds for divorce and there was blame all around. Reasons all around, cause all around. We both failed each other. We both messed up our marriage. And only by the grace of God, we both faced it that way. And I don't know how else to say it other than to add that we didn't both feel that way all the time on the same day. <laughs> but we fought back. And I'm telling you, you can fight back from anything. I'm telling you. You just, you just got to do it. And it's not easy, it's not fun at all. How much fun do you see in the stories of the people in this scripture? There's really not a whole lot. There's joy. There's peace. What there really is a whole lot of is a whole lot of work driven by something called faith. In the fall of... Well, let me back up. I told you I was always comfortable there. Uh, There were a couple of times during my music career where the Lord said, lay down your drums. Agonizingly difficult. Uh, And I don't mean this flippantly, and I don't mean it easily, and I don't mean any pat on my back, but I did, because I had to. Not because it was easy and, okay, great. It was more like, oh my God, what are you doing? But uh, it's too obvious, so I did... Gave them back, twice. But in 2001, my music career was basically over, and there's a whole lot of stories there, and I won't go into it, and yeah, 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 I won a Grammy and an ACM, but my music career fell apart. So, after two agonizing years of, what can I do on this planet but that, and provide for a family, I finally crossed over the threshold and said, I gotta do something. So I got a corporate job, uh, wonderful experience, found out my brain can do other things besides time. I can do other things, I have other skills. In fact, there's a watershed moment. Uh, so I'm two to three years in that job, I'm starting to really rise through the company, I'm managing people, I'm like, wow, I'm a drummer. <laughs> I mean, I mean seriously, I, yeah, I mean, I laugh about it too, but you gotta understand, right? So, and I'm like, why am I enjoying this so much? And I remember sitting in my office and thinking about that and really thinking about it. And what I realized, and it was was the Lord putting it in me, I know, was that I liked encouraging people. That's what I liked about managing people. Where do you want to go? What do you want to do with your life? How can I help you get there? Not just how can I help you solve the problem, go make the company money, but where do you want to go? And it was at that moment that I realized I was an encourager, And here's a funny thing, and if any musicians in the room that have played with me know this, that's how I play drums. I play drums to encourage people. If any of you have been here long enough, you know that there are sometimes I just do really weird things behind those drums. But I wake everybody up, don't I? (laughs) And it was at that moment in that office that I realized, oh my gosh, that's what I've always been. And I didn't know it. And it set a course for the rest of my life, too. And my point there is we're all gifted with things. We all have talents. We all have abilities. They're things we do, they're from the Lord. Then there's something underlying all that that is, you know, somewhere in the gift of the Spirit category, you know, teacher, pastor, encourager, this type of thing. And that's going to be the common thread. And if I had never realized that, I'd be in a gutter or dead and I'd be divorced. Because starting in 2001 in this job, God has taken me into places and doing things that I am not comfortable doing. I'm just not. I'm an introvert. I'd much rather be at home behind a computer. But he gave me a corporate job. He made me a manager of people. He made me a Dale Carnegie facilitator. So now I'm teaching people how to be enthusiastic in your communication. Come on. And I'm like, me? And all the time he's been like, yeah, you. I can't do that. Yeah, I know. You. Sound like some stories in scripture? And he's done it again and again and again and again and again and again. Including in the fall of 2010, when I found out suddenly that that great corporate job that I had, where we had tripled our income and were finally living a life of a steady paycheck and insurance and all the things that you never have as a musician, was going away. And I'll tell a long-involved story very quickly. That led to four years that is largely still going on of absolute desert journey straight out of the Old Testament. Some of the highlights would be I really feel like the Lord wants me to do this and it doesn't work. I'll try harder. doesn't work. Oh, it works a little. It works enough to know that God's saying do it, but not enough to not get, you know, a foreclosure notice in the mail. But at the same time, People are helping us through things. We're on the brink of losing our house and the mortgage company sells the mortgage. And the new mortgage company looks at where we are differently. So now we're not on the verge of foreclosure anymore. That's favor. And I could tell you story after story after story, after tearful, anguished story of attempting things that I know the Lord told me to do and having them fail or kind of succeed. And that's almost worse. Or succeed right up to the point where they don't. Like, okay, fine, I'll get a job. Get an interview, get a second interview. You're the man, you don't have the job. I could tell you just, I know what having your identity in Christ means because I've had my identity outside of him ripped from me for four years. I've had a wife saying, please provide for us and me have to go, I'm doing everything everything I know to do that I feel like the Lord's telling me. And her going, it's not good enough. And me saying, I know, you're right. I wish I could do more. At the same time, I could tell you story after story of favor that we didn't want and didn't like. I'd much rather be providing for my family like everyone else does. But God hasn't wanted that. But here's the thing, and I want kudos to Tammy. She sent us a, a DVD, a CD last year, and it really helped us through. And, and it was on Elijah and Elisha. And the, the gentleman telling the story was talking about um, being fed by the ravens, being fed by meat delivered by the ravens. And he was talking about being in that situation. And he just made the comment, you know, but I don't like meat. And God going, yeah, you do now. (laughs) And likewise, in that same sermon was his story of spending nine years in a job that he never wanted, that he knew the Lord gave him, and every week was a struggle to make payroll every week for nine years and he's crying out to the Lord and the Lord says, you think I'm building a business. I'm building a man. I wept for 30 minutes after that because that's what he's done. And I don't think he's done it for me. I really don't. If he has, I don't want it. But, but I'll tell you what I've learned from it. And this is why he's done it. I've learned that this book is so much more than just an owner's manual. It's so much more than just some nice tips. This is solid truth. Yeah. And the things in here Aren't suggestions and they're not advice and they're not like comments. Like we read, you know, it's better to live on the corner of a roof than with a nagging wife. It's like, oh, ha 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 ha. That's just reality. And I'm picking on that one scripture, but that's what I've realized. This book just describes reality. And if you look at it like that, it'll come alive. It'll come alive. And God wants it to come alive. And he wants us, and here's the main point I've learned. He wants us, Dave Mason touched on it earlier, he wants us 100% obedient and dependent on him. And of course, none of us are. But that's what he wants and I'm telling you guys, he's trustworthy. He's worth that. Now, tomorrow afternoon, I'm not going to be so sure, but I can tell you right now, and that's the walk of faith, right? I, I, I wish I could express what I'm trying to say better than I can say it. You know, we look at the Old Testament stories and we're like, well, yeah, you know, they were dependent on cows. You know, of course they depended on the Lord. I mean, cattle. What's the difference between that and your job? Nothing. You know, we think of Jerusalem as a dusty little backwoods town. It was the New York City of its time. You know, we, we read the Old Testament from an arrogant, distanced perspective, and that's not what was going on. Abraham was called to a land that God told him nothing about. The Israelites wandered in the desert by him going, oh, today we're moving on, which is what he's done with us for four years. Now I want you to go do this. Yeah, I know. I want you to do this. Okay. Now we're going over here. And it's all about him. And it's all about growing us up. And here's my proof. And this jumped out at me. So I mentioned the wandering in the desert, right? Everybody knows why that happened, right? Because the Israelites were disobedient, right? Everybody knows that. It's it's clear in Scripture, unquestionably, they're on this side of the river to the promised land. Go over there. It's going to be great. And they send spies, and the spies go, oh, we're not so sure. And all of them go, oh, I guess we can't go. I mean, literally, that's what happens. So God punishes them and sends them to the desert, right? I'm going to kill off all your leaders. It's all about you. You failed miserably. I'm going to smite you from the earth. And then we read in Deuteronomy, which is right before they're prepared to go back into the promised land after all this horrible desert, where Moses says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. I'm sorry, that's a different reading of the plot. So instead of God saying, remember... He led you because you were a bunch of losers, and he had to lead you because, you know, you're just such a mess. And, oh, by the way, he killed your forefathers. And suddenly the real reason comes out. I led you so that you would become dependent on me, and you would know that I'm trustworthy. And then he goes on to say, you're about to take a land, By the way, that was Deuteronomy 8. So 7, 8, and 9 is where all this is. Then he goes, you're about to go take a land that I've promised you. But don't think it's because you're so great. Because you're not. You're a mess. But I'm doing it because I promised and I'm a God who keeps my my promises. You get to share in what I'm going to do. Not because you're great. Because that's, The God I am. And then he changes the plot again and says, You're about to go in there and do this because of the wickedness of the people there, and they need to be taken out. Not because of you, not because you're great. But because I've got something that needs to be done there. That's the life we're all supposed to lead. We're supposed to be following him. And thankfully for the most part, we all are, right? And we get to enjoy the blessings that he has. I've come to realize that the walk with the Lord is him going, I want you to do this. To which we naturally and correctly respond, I don't think I can. And he says, I know, but I'll be there with you. And I'll help you. And then we start to do it, and we start to succeed in it, because he's there with us. And about the time we say, "Hey, I'm pretty good." He goes, "Yeah, ain't it great? What I did?" And yeah, you've grown too, haven't you?" So I've grown you, and I've accomplished what I want to accomplish. And it's all for my glory but you get to be a part of it. And then he does it again. So one last thing, because I was asked to talk about tools. Uh, Obviously the Bible. Get in the word, read the word, find yourself in the word, because you're in the word. The Israelites were not a bunch of bozos. They were us. We're just like them just like him and God loved him and if you're struggling read psalms David screamed at God in frustration we do too and dig into the word use a concordance find out what the word behind the word is I'm running out of time but run learn the words behind the words There's so much meaning to Scripture that's just lost in English. But Hebrew and Greek, you can uncover it. It's online. Get the big, thick concordance. It's not difficult. You come across a word and you go, huh, I wonder what that means. That's the Lord saying, go look it up. You'll enjoy. It'll be amazing what you'll find. Not, oh, uh, that must be, he, he must have thought I was Wayne or Barbie. No, he's telling you to go look it up. And it's okay. Okay, so remember the thought I told you to hold. My name is Stephen Carl Grossman. I am crowned man, man of integrity. I am man, husband, father, businessman, encourager. I'm strong, courageous. I do not tremble or discourage. For the Lord my God is with me wherever I go, et cetera, et cetera. All that is scripture, except the first part. The first part is my name. My name literally means crowned one, man. Carl means man. Grossman means man of integrity. And something I left out earlier was I was attacked ruthlessly as a kid, picked on in the area of manhood. Remember Jill talked about a target on your head? So my name has the word man in it twice. It's pretty ironic. Look up your name. It means something, just like in Scripture. And then find some Scriptures and hold on to them and speak them over yourself. often. I said all those things. I'm not all those things, but I'm trying. Okay, we're just about out of time. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, like Barbie to close us out, because I'm going to go where I'm kind of comfortable. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. God bless you.
0: stand, we're going to offer you a blessing. Just extend your hand. May the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, continue to reveal the testimony of Christ in your life. May you recount the days of goodness, the many joys, the blessings, the sorrows he's walked you through. May he clarify your path. May he bring you joy. May he give you peace. May he rest you under the shadow of his wings. In Jesus' holy and precious name we ask. Amen. We're just going to lift our hands for just one second. You can be dismissed. You can worship with just telling me a loving song.